Hi, this is Pastor Jake from Harvest Community Church. We meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. at 18511 East Hampton Avenue, Suite 204. We're located in the Movie Tavern Shopping Center next to the State Farm. You can check us out online at Facebook or on our webpage at harvestcolorado.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Yeah, everybody move forward and listen to me. Well, you can hear me anyways, which is fine. We're in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And he went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could, not, or he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about them, and, and, uh, he went about among the villages, teaching. When I became a Christian in 1990, um, I came from a pretty religious home. Uh, it was a double religious home. I mean, my father was Jewish, but not practicing. My mother's Catholic. She raised us kids Catholic. And I remember that when I came home from uh, this experience of, of receiving Christ uh, as my Savior, um, my parents could not understand it. And they developed this idea in their mind, this half-truth, that I was obviously doing something incorrect, that I must have been caught up in some sort of cultic activity. Because to my mom, the Catholic Church was the end-all, be-all. And I can imagine as a parent now, my daughter coming home saying, Dad, I want to go and be, I don't know, Russian Orthodox. And I would think that'd be weird. i say, well, why? You have a perfectly good church. I would understand that. I had this half-truth of understanding that uh, would cloud my vision. See, it was difficult in those days to share my new faith with my parents or my sisters, or with any of my family for that matter, because their minds had already become prejudiced to all that I had received. They had glommed on to this half-truth about Protestants, and they built an entire understanding about it and would not allow any of the newness and the excitement and the beauty of my new faith affect them. It is royally hard to influence your family. Maybe you've had that same experience. Maybe you come from a non-religious background and, and when you trusted Christ as your Savior and you would go to your parents or your family members and you'd attempt to share Christ, it was as if you were running a car into a brick wall. It was as if they had built this cocoon around themselves and nothing can get through. So Jesus shares this sort of experience, I think. He goes home to his hometown his disciples and follow him there. So he goes home. Now I can imagine maybe going home like at a family reunion and you see all your friends and family and maybe that's what initially happened. Maybe he caught up this, this experience and he walks in and goes, hey, and everybody goes, Jesus, hey! You remember the show Cheers? 
Norm would walk in the door and everybody go, Norm! And he'd say something witty and he'd get a beer. Maybe something like that happened. Maybe Jesus walks home and walks in and sees his mom and his brothers and they're like, hey, oh, we're so glad you're home from your whatever you've been doing. Uh, even though you left the family business, you know, and your brother had to pick it up and there's this amazing amount of Jewish guilt that apparently uh, happens in this moment. I, like I said, I grew up Catholic, so I understand guilt really, really well. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe he just happened to arrive at church one Sunday or one Saturday and walked in on the synagogue service and sat down in the place of teaching and just started letting it go. And maybe his mom and his brothers were there and they're like, oh, watch this. My boy's good at this. He's wicked smart. And then Jesus begins to tell the gospel. Maybe he reads from the scroll of Isaiah like he did back in the beginning of Luke or the beginning of Mark. Maybe he starts telling these amazing things. Maybe his reputation preceded him. We don't really know. It doesn't really say. All it says is he went home the disciples were there and he sat down in the synagogue and began to teach. And it says that the audience, his family members, his countrymen, all were offended. Whatever he was saying was offensive. Whatever he was saying was like, wait a minute. This is Jesus the carpenter who makes tables. And now he's in the synagogue teaching us? Wait a second. Something doesn't match. The Jesus we knew is not the Jesus we're seeing. And something is wrong. The little hairs on the back of the neck maybe stood up and they didn't quite get it. From what I understand in this whole entire piece of scripture, which was a very odd one for me to pick, I don't know why, but maybe I do now. I think it goes without saying that in Jesus' situation, and maybe ours later on, prejudice breeds unbelief. It's very difficult to believe somebody who tells the truth when you have a half-truth that you hold on to as your belief structure. So what's the root of prejudice against Jesus? Let's take a look at that. What's the root of their prejudice against Jesus? Let me tell you something. I have a philosophy in my house. Would you like to hear it? I believe all boys are evil. Sorry, boys that are in the, in the congregation this morning. I believe all boys are evil. Except for me, of course. But I believe all boys are evil. I believe all of them uh, have um, nefarious and malicious intent with both of my girls at some point. Whether whether realized, real or actual, whether imaginary or real, uh, I believe they're evil. Now, if you're a parent of a girl, you feel me. If you're a parent of a boy, you probably would like to come punch me. <laughs> you see, this is a prejudiced belief. I have in my mind that, yeah, because they're boys, they are all bad. Because I was a boy and I was all bad. I have a prejudiced belief against them, and it makes it near impossible for me to find favor with them. They have done nothing wrong, yet. That was that comma. I should have put that particular comma in there. I have no, I have no, they've done nothing wrong to me, they've done nothing wrong to my daughter, and yet I have this prejudice against them. It's a refusal to receive my daughter's friends based upon a half-truth. So the same situation that's occurring here in Jesus' time. It's the same uphill battle that he has to fight. He finds himself in a battle with half-truths with people that he grew up with and people who've known him for the longest. You see, the old saying is true. Familiarity breeds contempt. They assume they knew Jesus. See, when you grow up with somebody and then they come back into your life, you're expecting the very same person that went away, not the person who they've become. The old rules don't apply. And so it becomes safer for them to destroy what they don't understand. 
So when people don't fit our prejudiced expectations, it's easier to tear them down. It's easier to call into question who they are and what they've become, how they are, rather than accepting them for who they are. So Jesus walks into his hometown facing a familiar community who knew him one way and were confounded when they found out who he is now. You see, prejudice doesn't just keep in the mind. Prejudice comes out in the, in the mouth. Prejudice comes out in action. Prejudice attacks. And here, they go after his divinity and his humanity. They ask questions like, well, where did you get this power? Where did you get this wisdom? You see, from their perspective, only God has that ability to heal and to do amazing things, to forgive sins and declare good news, to teach with authority. They're looking at him going, wait a minute, you're a carpenter. You grew up down the street. You are this person. And now you're displaying divine power. and We don't know where you got this from. We don't know. We knew you when and who you are now does not match. So you must be lying. You must have done some sort of nefarious deal with the devil. Even later on, you notice that the Pharisees had the exact same argument. He has a, de- he has a demon, they say. And it's hard not to think that this was in their mind also. God in human form is unheard of. It's unheard of for the sick to be healed and the sins to be forgiven, for the dead to rise, and all because of one man. It doesn't match. They attacked his divinity. But also, to be sure, they attacked his humanity as well. They attacked his vocation. Wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus, the carpenter? It's like as if you were saying, isn't this Jesus, the toll booth worker? Isn't this Jesus, the guy who works in the smoke shop downstairs? Isn't this Jesus, who is the telemarketer? That is the same feeling that they're giving. They are demeaning his previous vocation, saying, wait a minute, this cannot be. They attack his location. He says, lowly people from this uh, town or region can't be what this guy says. If you remember, Nathaniel in the beginning of the book of John says, Nazareth, what good can come out of that? That's like saying, think of a place here in town. Think, say, oh, five points. Nothing good can come out of five points. Montbello, nothing good can come out of Montbello. That is the same understanding here. Location. They demean his vocation, they demean his location, and they demean his lineage. Isn't this his mom and his brothers and his sisters? I mean, come on, single mom raising up this guy? We know where you came from. We know your family. There's no way you can be what you are today because of what your family is right now. There's no way. Backwater people from families like this can't be who you say you are. And this half-truth that they have in their mind affects them tremendously in their ability to believe. See, the longer you believe a lie, the harder it is for a truth to change you. Think about our country for a moment. How long has it taken for our country to undo the havoc caused by believing a lie about African Americans? Three-fifths of a human, they used to say. How long has it taken for us to get to the place where we consider people of other races to be fully human? And treat them as such. We have believed a lie. And it has taken us 200 plus years to even consider it. Just think about a person like Jesus then. And all they know about him 
they cannot change their minds. Their prejudice has barred them from believing. It has built a cocoon, a coffin, a container, or a wall around themselves so they cannot believe. See, prejudice builds upon an incomplete understanding. See, false expectations of Jesus led them to have this offense in Him and His message. They allowed a false narrative to become an obstacle to saving faith. The obstacle of being right prevented them to being, uh, from them seeing who Jesus really was. And ultimately, it led to their rejection of Him. Ultimately, uh, ultimately, what they only half knew about Jesus became all they really ever wanted to know about Jesus. No amount of good deeds, no amount of miracles, no amount of amazing teaching could save them from themselves. They only wanted to know for who he was, not for what he'd become. No amount of displays of divinity or authoritative teaching would ever be able to change their minds. They were comfortable enough. We've seen enough of you, Jesus. We don't really care. We know where you came from. We know your, your vocation. We know your family. We know that you, all of that is just enough. We, you stay out there. It's this arm's length sort of thing. So how does Jesus respond? Often our response to rejection is to fight it. Just think about how you handle yourself on social media sometimes. A person comes and says something negative about you. What's your first instinct? Fight. To mean, go after. Uh-uh. And how quickly is it for you and I today in this world to be able to just uh, a verbal vomit on somebody else who has said horrible things about you? And I would half expect Jesus to do that. I think it might have been in his right to do so. But Jesus does something amazing here. He doesn't capitulate. He doesn't give in so that they will like him more. They're saying, no, wait a minute, you can't do all these things that you say you can do, and you're not who you say you are. And Jesus, maybe he could have said, well, listen, I really want you to like me, so let me do this amazing thing right here. Who's got an injury? Who's got something? Let me just show you who I am. Let me, let me give in to you. Let me make you like me. Let me say nice things. Let me teach in a way that just says, oh, that Jesus, he's a real cool guy. Jesus doesn't do that. What Jesus does is three things. One, he rebukes them. But not in a way that we would consider to be a rebuke. He just simply, softly, and authoritatively looks at them and says, a prophet is not without honor. A prophet is not without honor. It means the saying that there is worth in what I'm doing. There is goodness in what I'm doing. I have value, but not here. Not here amongst you who are really familiar with me. Not amongst you who are my relatives. And not you who are amongst my family. I have no honor with you. I have no value with you. That's just a true statement. That's just the way it is. And I cannot do the things I want to do here because you won't let me. You are prejudiced against me. And that's just the way it is. Jesus just simply tells the truth. You see, preaching and teaching the gospel amongst those who are family and friends is an uphill climb. It's extremely difficult. Familiarity gets in the way. And Jesus knows this and speaks truth to it. See, he wants to tell them basically that lack of belief is on them. It's on you. You don't want to believe. And so I'm not going to give in and try and, you know, squeeze water from a rock. I'm not going to even try. I'm just, I'm not even going to deal with it. This is on you. 
I've presented the good news. You, whether you believe it or not, is on you. Your familiarity with me, he seems to be saying, is prejudiced. It's made you prejudiced. It's closed your ears, it's blinded your eyes, and it's filled you with stubbornness and hardness of heart. But Jesus does this rebuke. And then he quietly heals a few. I love this. You know, it's only when you're really sick, it's only when you're really at a point of uh, desperation that you can truly receive God, I think. And these little sick people who happen to be on the edges of town, maybe, he walks by them, has compassion on them because they're in a place where they can believe. And he faithfully heals the faithful few, quietly. There's always a remnant. There's always a little bit. There's always a glowing ember of the faithful. When the rest of everybody just kind of rejects you and throws you off. See, in spite of majority rejection, the grace of God quietly and gracefully visits those and heals them. And then lastly, he quietly walks away. I have this image of my mind of Jesus walking away, almost in the sunset, you know, and his shadow on the dusty road to the next town. And this mob standing behind him just looking angrily like, well, where's he going? Jesus is like, I'm out of here. I ain't got to stay. Later on next week, we'll talk about what Jesus tells people, his disciples do when they go out into the world to share the gospel. And with nobody likes what they have to say, shake the dust off their feet as a sign against them. And maybe Jesus walked down that road, maybe a little sad, it's his family and friends and countrymen, and just turns and looks at them and just kind of shakes his foot. And the dust covering his toes and, and his sandals just kind of flies up in a little cloud. Little particulates in the sunshine. As a sign to say, I was here. Not anymore. See, Jesus has no problem walking away from those who refuse to believe. See, sometimes love for people doesn't mean you stick around and try to eke it out and so that they return it. Sometimes you've got to walk away. So what do we do with it? Well, first of all, what does this tell me about Jesus? It tells me, number one, that Jesus is always on mission. Jesus is always doing what he came to do. Jesus is always on mission. He doesn't let the unbelief of his family and friends and the familiar mire him into that place. He doesn't let their unbelief and unfaithfulness bog him down to make him stay. He simply says, that's it. I got other places to be. Jesus takes the gospel to the next place because that's why he came. Jesus is all about the mission. I am here to do the work of my Father, he says. I must go on because that is why I showed up. But secondly, I believe it tells us that Jesus works with the little in faith. See, the gospel accounts are always littered with these miracles with the tiny, with those that are tiny of faith, the mustard seed people. And Jesus loves on those who believe and then also admit their unbelief. And lastly, I believe it tells us that Jesus goes everywhere with the gospel, even to those who will reject it outright. You see, Jesus already knew by the time he got home that he would have a really hard time getting through to those people, and yet he still went. It makes no sense to you and I in this world. Why would we go to a place where we would not, where we would be rejected outright? Why would we continue to serve in a place where people won't come? It's because of the gospel. Because it must be shared. Because it must be given. You see, God's gospel is, is for us so that, uh, because he's not willing for any of us should perish. 
And it must be shared. Paul goes on to say in Romans, this is how will they believe unless they hear? Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. Jesus is on mission. Jesus works with the faithful few. And Jesus takes the gospel everywhere. But what does it take about, tell about us? What does this story say about you and I? Who are you in this story? Here's what I think. I think it tells us that we are prone to familiarity with Jesus. I think when we have been in the faith for so long, there is a temptation and a, uh, and a, prone, a proneness to becoming so faithful with Jesus or so familiar with Jesus that we fail to see Him for who He is. We only glom on to the things we really like about Him. And when He comes at us with an offensive thing to say and it shows us who we really are, we tend to create this barrier, this fence around ourselves to keep Him out. We become comfortable with the parts we like about Jesus. We become offended by the ones we don't. And then we become unwilling to completely follow Him. It also tells us that we are also susceptible to creating artificial walls around ourselves that close us off from the work of God in and around us. It's as if we are building our own coffin instead of joining Him on mission. There's a great story that Jesus tells where he's walking along and he tells a man, follow me. And he says, sounds great. I gotta go bury my father first. Jesus says something amazing. He says, let the dead bury their dead. Follow me. Rich young ruler, what must I do? Jesus says, sell everything. Follow me. And he couldn't. He had built a wall of money and comfort around himself. We build defenses to keep Jesus out. We build walls to keep others out. We have built our own deathbeds. And we are comfortable with Jesus moving on from us. Let that sink in for a moment. We are very comfortable with Jesus moving on from us so that we can remain how we are. See, Jesus comes and challenges us with the gospel and says, Be born again. I know how you were born. I know how you are. Be born again. Follow me. And we are unwilling. We are unwilling to go where he goes. We are often too comfortable with Jesus to follow him. So what do we do with this? Number one, I think we ought to repent. I think we ought to repent and receive Jesus as He is, not as you want Him. See, our culture likes Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. Especially the velvet painting of Jesus. Or the one you see with, He's got the flowing hair that like He just got out of the salon. We like that Jesus. We like Jesus who is kind to animals and uh, who is part of every whatever cause we have. We like Jesus who hangs out with children. But we don't like Jesus... Our culture does not like Jesus who says, stop sinning. Our, 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 Jesus who says, follow me. Jesus says, leave it all behind. Follow me. We don't like that one. We love His joy and His kindness and His grace and His acceptance. And people build their prejudices around just that part of Him. But when Jesus speaks judgment to us, like He does on the Sermon on the Mount, 
We don't like that. When Jesus dies for us on the cross and we look up and say, that's because of you. I'm up here because of you. Willingly here to die for you. We don't like that. When the cross of Christ declares that we are all enemies of God and that we don't love Jesus, our familiarity and our prejudice prevents us from receiving us as he is. I think it tells us that the gospel is offensive because it all brings us into the same banner of enemies of God and it shows that we are all worthy of deserving death. And it declares that while Jesus was on his mission to receive in his body the very death that we deserved and it announces that we are all saved at that very cross and declared family. We must receive Christ as he is, not as we want him. And we must follow him where he leads. A believer in Christ is a follower of Christ. It is not just in a sense of saying that feels great. Because let me tell you, being a believer in Christ does not feel great sometimes. It is a hard road, but it is a worthy road. And it is worth our effort and it is worth our time. Following Jesus is the way out of the graveyard, out of the coffin of comfort. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and life abundantly. There is no life inside of a comfortable coffin. You're just waiting to die. Coffins are safe. Life with Jesus is not. It's a call to be a believer. Or the call to be a believer is a call to not remain as you were born, but to be born again. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Real followers drop what they're doing and follow Jesus wherever he goes in order to live like he does so that the world may be visited by him so that they might have the opportunity to believe. And lastly, this is to us as a church. This hit me hard this week. We must be a church on the go. It has been really hard to watch the decline of our attendance. It has been really hard to watch the decline of people showing up on a Sunday to participate in worship. It is really hard because many times people just want church that's comfortable. I like the music. I like the songs. I like when Jake preaches short. But I don't want to be a group of contentious people that are saying, I don't want Jesus. I don't want to be a church of people that are that, it's, that refuse to follow him because he doesn't fit the norms of my lifestyle. I don't want to be a church of a bunch of people that just simply come on a Sunday morning and then walk out completely unchanged, unwilling to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did a whole lot with 12. What could he do with the 20 in here? See, Jesus goes where he is not going to be received, and yet he still goes. That is the call to us as a church, as Harvest Community Church ought to be going into the field and harvesting with the gospel. This is our call. I don't want to be the ones who are at the end who are watching Jesus walk away from our town. I don't want to be on the other side standing with the crowd of people saying, well, gee, that was a nice time. I'm glad he was here. 
And now he's gone. I want to be with the disciples who followed Jesus in and followed him out. See, God's good news and grace is for everyone. And everyone will get a chance to believe it is on you. And it is on me to take this gospel to everyone. Our neighbors, our co-workers, the guy in the smoke shop downstairs. Either we're going into a place of mystery or familiarity, it does not matter. We are to be a church on the go. Let us not be people that are so stubborn in our ways and what we think we ought to be that we'll stay in the place of comfort and not follow Jesus to the next place. Because staying in the next place uh, is death. By God, I don't want to die. I don't want this church to die. I want to be at the very end of this scripture where he says, and he went about among the villages teaching. I want to be in that train. I want to be where he is, wherever that is. So let me ask you this question in closing. Who are we more like? Are we more like the community of contempt? Are we more like the community of the coffin? Are we more like the community of those waiting to die in our comfortability? Or are we going to be like the disciples who wherever Jesus goes, we go? Who are you? Are we going to be like those who follow Jesus in the places of unwelcome and prejudice? Or are we just content to die? I don't want to die. And this Jesus who offers me life, I want to go wherever he tells us to. See, Jesus came to raise the dead. So let you and I be the ones who are alive with him and follow wherever he goes, even if it is to our end.